Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Here's our big idea for this morning. Jesus is the only Savior worthy of our trust. Jesus is the only Savior worthy of our trust. I don't know if you've ever had the experience or not, but uh, you come upon a bridge, and the bridge just looks old and ratty. And you think, can this hold the weight of my car or myself or whatever else it might be? You, you have to trust in that moment that that bridge will get you from one spot to the other, that it will actually function as it is promising to function. This morning, as we kind of dig into our ongoing series in Isaiah, we recognize that, that God is inviting the nation of Israel and, and ourselves also to trust in a coming Messiah, to trust in uh, this person that was going to come and was going to be a deliverer, that was going to be a redeemer. And so Jesus is the only Savior worthy of our trust. And we're going to see this particularly in two different movements. In chapter 41, verses 1 through 20, we're going to see uh, God describe for us a, a fearful servant. A fearful servant, particularly the nation of Judah, as they hear these prophecies and they hear uh, this promise of these nations kind of invading them, they're uh, naturally given to fear. But in chapter 42, we're going to describe a faithful servant. In fact, that language is going to be used of both of them. They're going to call Israel a servant in chapter 41, and then ultimately call Jesus a servant in chapter 42, and then ongoing throughout the book of Isaiah. See, we've been walking through the book of Isaiah for the last few weeks and kind of hitting the high points, as it were, of the book. And as we've kind of discussed, we, we saw in chapter 1 through 12, we see this discussion with Israel and Judah from God, kind of a condemnation of their idolatry, a condemnation of their lack of righteousness and justice. And in, verse, in chapters 13 through 24, um, they condemn all the nations, Babylon, Assyria, Israel, Judah, everybody kind of gets this... Uh, promise of coming judgment from God. And it turns a corner in chapter 25 through 27 as God promises that he's going to make a new Jerusalem. And then in chapters 28 through 35 is a condemnation of Israel's leadership. And it kind of culminates this historical piece in chapters 36 through 39 as we hear the story of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was this faithful king, largely, until the last years of his life when he invited Babylon to see his house of wealth or his house of whatever it is. I think it's, it describes it as a house of wealth. And you're thinking, I wish I had a house of wealth, right? And he invites the nations of Babylon to come in and see all of his wealth and all of the things that he's accumulated, the generational wealth that has accumulated in his house. And God comes to him through the prophet Isaiah and says, within three generations, all of this is going to be carried away by Babylon. And so it's the culmination of the story of judgment, 39 chapters of judgment. And we see, you know, just kind of this righteousness and holiness of God that when we fall short in terms of his righteousness and bringing justice on the earth, he will bring judgment. But now, when we enter to this back half of the book, starting in chapter 40 and continuing through the end of the book, we find grace. And particularly, we'll find the promise of a suffering servant. See, 
what we'll see in chapter 42 is the first of these four servant songs. And it'll kind of culminate to what we'll preach next week in chapter 53, where Jesus, the, the suffering servant, will take on the sins of his people, will extend grace and mercy to those who have faith in him. See, here's the context then. If, if chapters 1 through 39 were all about judgment, chapters 40 through 66 are a definition of God's grace. And, and when we turned in chapter 40, the first verse of this new section, God says to Isaiah, he says, comfort, comfort my people. And so we enter chapters 41 and 42 this morning with the mode of comfort to receive from God. So let's look at chapter 41, verses 1 through 20, where we see God's fearful servant. I'm going to invite you to read with me in chapter 41 of the book of Isaiah, chapter chapter 41, verse 1. It says, Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, he like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. What's happening in these verses? See, first thing we see is that God judges the nations through someone from the east. And God raises up another leader against the nations. And first, he speaks to these coastlands in verse 1, right? And we're talking about what, what are these coastlands he's speaking about. He's speaking to the furthest away of the Gentile nations, the islands, the most uh, kind of exotic peoples that you can imagine. And he's calling them to come for judgment. And he starts asking them these questions. In verse 2, he says, Who stirred up one from the east? whom victory meets at every step. And then in verse 4, who has done this? And of course, this question is rhetorical. God's asking uh, these coastlands, these Gentile nations, who has raised up these leaders that you are so afraid of? Who is it that's raising up Assyria? Who is it that's raising up Babylon? And who is it that will raise up Persia? In fact, that would be the next king that's spoken of here. Persia would defeat Babylon in 529 BC. It's recorded for us in places like 2 Chronicles chapter 36. And what God's pointing to in these first four verses is he's saying that the, the fear of the nations should be fear of God, that God is the one who's raising up these nations. In fact, that's what he says in verse four. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. See, God is the one who's standing behind these political realities. The God of heaven is the true kingmaker who raises up leaders, who squelches nations. And here he reminds these Israelites that he pulls the strings of the marionette, as it were. What happens in verses 5 through 7 is that uh, the nations kind of create these idols. Look, he says, The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. And he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of soldering, it's good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. You're like, what is this picture? Well, verse 5 tells us that these nations are afraid. 
That they're afraid. They're afraid of, of these approaching armies. They're afraid of these strong leaders that are coming from the east. And so their natural response is to turn to idols, which is what's described in verses 6 and 7. You're familiar with the concept of idols, right? Uh, there were these little statues that represented gods and goddesses. And if you bowed to them, you kind of garnered favor with them so that you could have a fertile womb or you could have a rich harvest or you could be wealthy and happy or whatever else it might be. And verse 7 describes what this craft is like. He says, the craftsman strengthens the goldsmith and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. Like there's this description, and this has actually been used before in the book of Isaiah. Back in chapter 40, this, the crafts, craftsman, excuse me, the craftsman was one who was given to crafting idols. And the picture here is the idol maker, the one who's shaping and forming these idols that other men would bow down to worship. So then what we have, to be clear, is we have kings established by God who lead their nations into idolatrous worship. We have kings who are established by God and they lead their nations to worship idols. It's here that God speaks directly to the descendants of Jacob, starting in in verse 8 through verse 20. Look there with me in chapter chapter 41, verses 8 through 10. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand looks in contrast at these idols, and he starts to respond, and and he highlights a few things about his servant Israel. He says, Jacob is my chosen servant. He says that right there in verse 8. You, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. And he describes them in this way. See, the word servant here is used of the nation of Israel. And we've said that this becomes kind of a running theme through these chapters in 40 through 55. The Zondervan Study Bible kind of summarizes it this way. It says that all except for one of the references in chapters 41 through 48, the references to the servant are speaking about the nation of Israel. Only one reference, which we'll look at this morning, speaks of the servant Jesus. But from 49 through 55, all but one of the references to the word servant speak to Jesus and not the nation of Israel. So what we have then is through these 15 chapters, we have an ongoing discussion about the servant Israel that is increasingly centering upon the person of Christ. So what we see here is that the descendants of Jacob are described. Look at what he says in verse 8. He chose them. Right? He, he approached Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He said, I am going to bless you, and through you I'm going to bless the nations of the earth. He chose them. He brought them from the ends of the earth. Abraham came from Chaldea, probably modern-day Iraq. He brought them from the ends of the earth, and he blessed them in this promised land. He tells them that they need not be afraid in, in verse 10. All right, fear not. I'm with you. He promises that he will be present with this people. This is exactly what he 
describes his presence with his people in verses 10 through 16. He says, Israel, don't need, you don't need to be afraid. Verses 11 through 16 tell us that Israel won't have enemy, any, any enemies left. Specifically, verses 11 and 12 tell us that Israel will look around for their enemies. They won't find them. Verse 13, for I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Verse 15 tells us that Israel will be like a, a threshing sledge. Whatever that is, it just sounds really cool, doesn't it? It's a threshing sledge. It's something sharp that cuts everything down. Like all of the nations around them will be subdued. Verse 17 through 20 tell us that God is the one who will provide for those who first thirst. It's a metaphor for God's provision for those in need. And it all kind of culminates to verse 20. Look at verse 20 with me. That they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. See, as opposed to the nations described earlier, Israel has the God of the universe who has chosen them and called them from the ends of the earth, who promises to be with them. And God will use Israel to exalt his name. Rather than turning to idols, there's this call for Israel to not be afraid and to turn to the God that is mighty in their midst. And so, verses 21 through 29, then, are this kind of courtroom situation because God calls upon these idols to prove themselves worthy. Look at verses 21 through 24. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen, right? Predict the future. Tell us the former things, what they are, that they, we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that, you, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. If you know the history of Israel at this point, their history was one of giving themselves over to idols consistently. And that's the problem that kind of plagues the nation of Israel, southern kingdom or northern kingdom, throughout the book of First and Second Kings. They're constantly giving themselves over to false worship of false gods. And so when uh, God says in verse 24, an abomination is he who chooses you, it's a condemnation of all these forms of false worship. It's a turning in trust to false gods. And it's particularly heinous here in Isaiah chapter 41. On the contrary, in verses 25 through 31, God raised up Assyria. God raised up Babylon and Persia. We know he did because uh, he told us that it would happen even before it did happen. See, verses 28 and 29 affirm it. There is no one who does as the Lord. No idols can predict the future. No idol can raise up kings and destroy kingdoms. Verse 29 says it, Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. See, what we have here in Isaiah 41 is a call to the nation of Israel saying, You have the Lord who's strong and powerful in your midst. Don't turn to these idols of the nations to protect you. 
Don't turn to them. Don't turn into this senseless worship because it's the Lord who raises up these enemies. It's the Lord who puts down these kingdoms. So you recognize this morning that idols always fall short of their promises, don't they? Israel had a a long, hard history with idolatry. We've talked about this a little bit. This is why God speaks to the futility of these idols in this chapter. There were two idols in particular that, that they really struggled with. The first is Baal, right? Baal was this god of fertility, god of the harvest. And in Numbers chapter 25, we realize that the nation of Moab kind of introduces this idolatrous worship into the nation of Israel, and they struggle with it ever since. But the second idol is this, it's Molech. Molech, uh, the worship of Molech was forbidden in places like Leviticus chapter 18. But Molech was one who required child sacrifice. He required not just the sacrifices of animals or, or these religious rituals that was like Baal or the ashram or whatever else. This God required the killing of children to appease him. See, what it goes on to show, or show us, what these idols show us, is that the idols of our heart are always demanding something of us and always giving so little in return. They're, they're requiring us of us the most precious things that we can envision. They're requiring us of us this constant sacrificial nature that we might appease them, that we might uh, perform for them so that they could, in turn, kind of bless us. See, these idols, they never deliver. They, they never come through for us. We might talk about modern-day idolatry in a little bit different sense. The New Testament does this with clarity, right? We just saw in Philippians chapter 3 where, where Paul says that their God is their stomach. In Colossians chapter 3, uh, Paul writes and he says that uh, sex is a form of idolatry or can be a form of idolatry. See, we recognize that the modern-day idols aren't little statues that we hang on our mantles or or things that we bow down to and worship or make sacrifices to. We we make spiritual sacrifices. We make sacrifices of time and energy and effort to the things that we value, whether it be money or sex or power or whatever else it might be. And these idols never actually deliver anything that fulfills us. When was the businessman ever had enough? Rockefeller has this quote, right? Someone asked him, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. When did the sex addict finally reach their point of satisfaction? Isn't that why Mick Jagger wrote those words so many years ago, I can't get no satisfaction? See, contemporary society describes our desires as thirst. You ever hear that? There's discussion about people are thirsty But the solutions it provides are salt water. We just drink and drink and drink, and we think if I just get a little bit more, a little bit more money, a little bit more respect, a little bit more power, a little bit more authority, and I just drink and I drink, and all it does is draw me closer and closer to death. I think Jesus addressed this in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 is so interesting because it's part of the Sermon on the Mount. And and Jesus is describing this new life in the kingdom. And in Matthew chapter 6, toward the end, he comes to us and he says, Hey, um, you cannot serve both God and money. 
You can't do both. You can't be about money and about God. You can't have God as the one you truly worship if you're idolizing money. And in the very next verse, he says this, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. So Jesus draws a link to say the idols of our heart, the false worship that we do, create our anxieties. Then he closes out this section in verse 33, and he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. See, Jesus put his finger on something, that when we turn to these, uh, these impotent, false gods that can't actually do anything, that need to be formed by our own hands, created by our own ingenuity, they never actually produce anything. They leave us high and dry time and time and time again. How many times have you thought that money was the solution? How many times have you thought that love was the solution? How many times have you thought that X or Y or Z was the solution and it wasn't? See, our idols only produce our anxieties. And what they represent is an unfaithfulness to our Lord. When we turn to those other things, those other wells, as Jeremiah would say, we're left thirsty and unfaithful to the God who can actually satisfy us. See, but God desires to show us something that's worthy of our trust here this morning in Isaiah 42. Thank God that he doesn't just leave us in 41, that we would figure out and navigate all of our idolatrous things. He opens up chapter 42, and he invites us to hear. Look at chapter 42, verses 1 through 9, where we read of God's faithful servant. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Who is this person that's being described here. In contrast to these vain idols created by craftsmen, unable to speak, unable to predict the future, unable to do harm or do good, what is this person that's being described to us now? We know retrospectively that we're talking about Jesus Christ. And I want to just highlight the structure of this verse or these verses in in verses 1 through 9 as we kind of look at this. Because what we have is we have pronouns that are changing all over the place, and it might get kind of confusing. Verse 1, he starts off and he uses these I and my pronouns. God the Father speaking about his purpose and his design. But in verses 2 through 4, he's going to switch to he pronouns. He's going to be describing the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 5, he returns back to the I and my pronouns. And then in verses 6 and 7, he speaks directly to his servant using the I and you pronouns. And then finally, he returns back to a discussion of his purpose in verses 8 and 9. Let's start in verses 1 through 4, what we just read. 
unpack who this servant is. See, Jesus is a justice-establishing servant. As we read through these verses, what's the word that just pops off the page? It's used three times in these verses. It's justice, that Jesus is going to establish this sense of justice. And he gives a description. It starts in verse 1 that he's upheld by God. The word upheld there is the same term that uh, is used of Moses when Aaron has to hold up his arms, that God is the one who's upholding the Savior, Jesus Christ. He's actually working in collaboration with him. And it goes on to describe that his spirit, he's anointed with the spirit of God. We've seen this already in chapter 11. We'll see it uh, again in chapter 61. If we were to read that passage, uh, we see this emphasis that the Spirit fills Jesus and renews Jesus and actually brings about the life of Jesus that we see in the Gospels. We remember that Jesus was uh, anointed with the Spirit at his baptism, and it's this anointing with the Spirit or this assistance of the Spirit that is so emphasized here in the book of Isaiah. Verse 2 describes this, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice in the streets, Jesus is one who doesn't have to self-promote. Matthew quotes this section of Matthew chapter 12, specifically after discussion that, that, that uh, Jesus was one who he would heal, and then he would tell people not to talk about what he's done. So he would heal someone, and he'd say, hey, you don't need to, to go and tell everyone about this. Jesus was one who didn't have to... Uh, procure power and authority and position by going out into the streets and levying himself or, or pushing himself as if he were a politician or someone else. Generally speaking, Jesus was quiet about himself. I was just thinking this morning that John 7, Jesus' brothers go to the Feast of Tabernacles and Jesus chooses to stay back. And his reasoning that he tells his brothers is that my hour has not yet come. I, I don't want to be in the public eye. Verse 3 tells us that he's gentle to the hurting. It says that Jesus would not break a bruised reed. He wouldn't snuff out a smoldering wick. That metaphor can be lost on us. What the heck is a bruised reed? Well, a reed was was something that you could put weight upon. It was thick and and hardy. You could kind of uh, lean on it. In fact, that's the way it's used formerly in the book of Isaiah. You could build with it. But if a reed was bruised, it was kind of useless. It didn't have that rigidity that was there, and it was only good for kind of throwing out. See, we get greater clarity clarity with the second image, a smoldering wick, something that's no longer uh, quite burning as once as it strongly had burned. And, And Jesus wasn't one who would come out and break the bruised reed or snuff out the smoldering wick. He he deals with us with gentleness and patience. See, Jesus doesn't break the brokenhearted. He deals tenderly with his people, with those who have faith in him. See, no matter this morning, no matter what your picture of Jesus is, this is how Jesus described himself. Matthew 11, he has this statement, you know, we're so familiar. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Well, he goes on to say, he says, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. I'm gentle and lowly of heart. Some of us have grown up, we've embraced the notion that God is this far-off character who's looking just to thumb us, uh, to push us down with the thumb of his finger, to kind of squelch us in his wrath. But this picture is of a God who shows grace in his servant Jesus. 
Verse 4 tells us that he's inexhaustible. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. He doesn't start something that he doesn't complete. He, he actually carries it out to the end in this uh, endeavor of bringing justice to the earth. God's not going to quit halfway through. He's going to carry it out to its end. And finally, verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And that word's a, a hot topic today, isn't it? Justice. We have all kinds of notions and definitions floating around in our head about what justice is. And I read someone this week that described justice as, as God's divine order for his creation. That God's divine order, the way he intended things to be. When we're devoted to that, that's called justice. When we're devoted to all of God's image bearers receiving the due, the honor, the respect that's due them, that's justice. When we're devoted to seeing uh, the high and exalted, the self-exalting brought low, and the lowly exalted, that's justice. That's God's divine order. It's God's divine order when we devote ourselves to seeing Christ exalted and man humbled. That's justice. See, our pursuit of justice may start first in our living room before it takes place in a courtroom. If justice is being concerned for the divine order, it has ramifications for my parenting and my neighboring. It's not some abstract concept that has no bearing on my daily life it, and only affects the way I read the news. Justice is an orientation of my heart that thirsts and desires for the righteousness of God to dwell on earth as he intended. See, Jesus is God's means the reestablishment of justice. That's what verse 4 is telling us. Till he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands, the nations, the Gentiles, they wait for it. See, Jesus is the only one who will fully and finally reestablish God's divine order. And you and I have the privilege of trying to see that accomplished right here and right now on this earth. You and I might have a bad taste in our mouth about the word justice, but I assure you it's a very biblical concept. We, as Christian people, redeemed and renewed in the blood of Jesus Christ, should be concerned about God's order on the earth. Right? See, we can't be people of faith in Jesus who claim to trust in Jesus and be unconcerned with what happens on his world. The book of Isaiah is constantly pointing us to this reestablishment of God's divine order on the world. We ourselves have the privilege of seeking that out. You're, you're at home on a Saturday afternoon and you hear the screaming from the other room. It's the two kids, cat fighting. That's a, yeah, that was a literal sound effect from my house. And for me, I go into that room and my first concern is not justice. My first concern is peace. My first concern is just to get everybody to be quiet again. 
See, we have the opportunity to express the divine order of creation even in our own homes, in our own communities, in our own neighborhoods, as we seek out God's divine order. So Jesus is one who brings about this divine order, who brings about justice. Now look at verses 5 through 9. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open up the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, uh, those who set or sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. What's happening here is in verse 5 and in verses 8 and 9, God is giving us a picture of his divine right to do something new. Verse 5, he gives us his resume, right? He created the heavens. He spread out the earth, who gives breath to people on it. In verses 8 and 9, he, he gives himself. He says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I don't give my glory to another, and therefore I'm doing something new. I'm bringing something new. It's uh, the pre-shadowing or the foreshadowing of what Revelation 21 will describe when Jesus is saying, Behold, I make all things new. So he's saying, I have divine prerogative to do whatever I want. What is it that he's doing? Well, look at what he does with his servant in verses 6 and 7. I am the Lord. I have called you. I've called you, Jesus, in righteousness. I will take you, Jesus, by the hand and keep you. I will give you, Jesus, as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. I will give you, Jesus, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Who is that? That's me. That's you. You have faith in Jesus Christ. You're set free. You are set free in Christ. Isn't that what's being described here? That he's doing something new. He's giving a new covenant to us in his righteousness, in his grace, in his justice. And the fullness of Jesus is given to us as he's upheld by the Father, as he's anointed by the Spirit, so that you and I receive mercy. So this is the new thing that God is doing. And there's no idol in the world that could ever promise this. There's nothing on earth that could ever bring this to you. Is there? Is there any amount of hours you can put in at your job that can accomplish this? Any amount of dollars in your 401k that brings this about? Any amount of respect at work, any kind of uh, new job or new orientation at work? No, of course not. All of our idols fell short here. You know what God's saying to these people in Israel? Your idols don't work. Come to my servant, Jesus. Receive righteousness. See, what stands out from our passage this morning is that Jesus stands as God's true servant. Jesus trusted his Father with perfection. 
Jesus never entertained the thought of an idol in his heart, in his mind. Notice that our passage tells us of a collaboration between God the Father and His true servant and the Spirit. It's the servant, Jesus, that upholds, or that God upholds, that God endows Him with the Spirit, and He brings forth God's justice. We were just in 1 Peter chapter 2, and in 1 Peter chapter 2, there's this discussion about submitting to others, even when it's uncomfortable and not advantageous for us. Submitting to government authorities, submitting to uh, slaves, submitting to, to unrighteous masters. And in the midst of that discussion, Peter brings out this discussion about Jesus. And it says that Jesus kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That Jesus was this perfect servant who kept trusting his father even when things were going poorly for him. He taught what the the Father taught him. We see this in John chapter 7. He says, my teaching is not mine, but it's his who sent me. He did the works that the Father showed him. In John 5, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. His disciples were given to him by the Father. So that in his high priestly prayer, prayer in John 17, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Everything that Jesus had was given to him by the Father. He was constantly trusting in his Father. He wasn't turning to some silly idol. Finally, it was at his death. Jesus cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. See, Jesus Christ is the only one who's earned our trust. As he has been faithful to his Father, he's the only one we should truly count on. He's been faithful to the point of his own death, to the sacrifice of his own life willing to lay down his life so that we might live. Jesus is the only one who can make us trustworthy. He's not just a father, a son, a servant to be trusted on our behalf. He's the one who can make us trustworthy. The Savior's faithfulness makes us faithful servants. See, in Isaiah 42, we're promised the Messiah who brings justice with humility. He doesn't break bruised reeds. He doesn't snuff out smoldering wicks. Rather, by his own breaking and bruising, he fully and finally establishes his people so that we might become like his faithful servant. See, here's the truth this morning, Christian. If you're in Christ, the the idols of your heart, the idols that you desire, the idols that you worship, the things that you long for can never accomplish what Jesus has already done. Tim Keller has highlighted this idea. And he says this. He says, our idols, they they fail to fulfill us, and they never forgive us when we fail. They fail to fulfill us, and they never forgive us when we fail. Think about this. When we give ourselves to our idols time and time again, they, they never actually deliver what they promise in terms of fulfillment. And then when we don't give it those things, when we don't put in that extra effort at work or we don't save that extra cash to build up our 401k or whatever it may be, we we never find forgiveness for that. That moment's gone and it's 
forever placed in the history of our lives. Season right now, this Christmas season, is, is rampant with idols. Kind of makes me nervous as I'm walking around my house for uh, putting gifts under the tree, doing all this stuff. I mean, for kids, it's, you know, the, the blatant materialism of gifts. You ever get uncomfortable with that? Like, I want this. I want a, a spaceship and, a, you know, whatever else. My, my kid voice needs some work, I think, too. Husbands and wives, like you turn on Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever, and there's like dozens of romantic uh, holiday comedies that are there, right? And there's this idolization of the romance of the holiday season that's there. Adults, for us, sometimes it's the sentimentality, the desire to be with family, that the thing that family cures all and ends all of my problems and difficulties, that if I could just get a white Christmas with a fireplace and a cup of hot cocoa, everything's going to be fine. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't celebrate the holidays. However, it's recognition that good things become gods if we're not careful. The problem comes when the holiday doesn't deliver what it's promised. The kid doesn't get everything he wanted. Husband buys his wife a vacuum cleaner for Christmas, right? Or if you bought a vacuum cleaner, there's still time, right? <laughs> Christmas dinner kind of unravels in this discussion about politics. And all of a sudden, family gets ugly with one another, and your white Christmas just unravels right before your eyes. See, you can sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice to the idols of your life, and, and I promise that they'll never actually fulfill you. The, the thing that you work so hard to get your white Christmas sentimentality on, I promise you it's just going to be more work for next Christmas. And if you don't make sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, those idols will never forgive you. They'll never let it go. You'll never be able to rewrite the history of what's happened. Let's just put this on practical terms for a second. Joe wants to be a pediatrician. And what he does is he goes to college and he works so hard. He has this ideal that his life will, will take on significance if he invests in, in the health of children. And so he goes to school and he hits the books and he works hard through his undergrad experience and he gets into the good college and he does his graduate school and his residency at the top of his class and he's putting in the work, he's doing everything that he needs to do. He's studying and he's networking and he's working on his bedside manner and he's working and being diligent so that he can reach that goal of helping kids. And finally what happens is one day he gets the job at the top hospital. He's finally done it. He's working. And he goes home and he finally one day realizes that the only thing that's there is more work. There's always more kids to be served, more uh, papers to be studied, more papers to be written, more work to be done. And the more he throws himself into that work, the less satisfied and gratified he is by his work. You ever felt that? We might write the same story with our finances or whatever else those idols of our heart might be. See, you see then that 
The idols of our heart were supposed to serve us, but in the end, we end up serving them. I want to put this quote from Tim Keller in front of us. The living God who revealed himself both at Mount Sinai and on the cross is the only Lord who, if you find him, can truly fulfill you. And if you fail him, can truly forgive you. Jesus doesn't demand our incessant sacrifice to him. In fact, Jesus has given himself as the only sacrifice. And Jesus delivers the true satisfaction that he promises. He stands in contrast to those paltry idols that we worship those things that we bow down to almost without knowing it. He stands as the true end and means of our joy together. I wonder if this holiday season we might reflect upon that and see that those other things that we turn to never actually satisfy us. And that Jesus is the only Savior worthy of our trust. Would you pray with me? Lord, we pray that now pray that you would allow our hearts to lean heavily upon the work of Jesus Christ. The recognition that he has paid for our sins, that the promise of the future with him holds out joy, peace, hope. Lord, remove our fingers from the idols that we cling to. And allow us to trust and delight in your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to trust that you bring good things through faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.